Hey, this, this, uh, this past week in the East Bay, the big news was a big earthquake, right? You all felt that. Was it on Monday night? And then the next night, what we all thought was an aftershock turned out not to be an aftershock, the, the explosion at the refinery. And, and then I heard that we had a second earthquake that happened later that evening, I think on Tuesday night or something. So we've had a lot going on in the East Bay. And I, I got thinking as all that was happening, um, what, what do we do? How do we respond when we have personal earthquakes in our life? A financial earthquake, a marriage earthquake, or a family earthquake, a career earthquake, we lose our job, a physical earthquake, the doctor calls and says it's not good. Um, the, the reality is, is that we go through life and every once in a while, out of nowhere, an earthquake hits. It's not like a hurricane where you have anticipation of what's coming. No, the earthquake comes out of nowhere. And then you and I are left to try and pick up the pieces and figure out what do we do? How do, how do we recover? Where do we go from here? We are continuing our series. This is week three in the life of Elisha in our series called Dream Bigger but Start Smaller. And today we're going to talk about the life skill of how do we navigate when an earthquake comes our way, when we have an explosion at the refinery. What do we do in our personal lives when that happens? And frankly, it's a pretty important skill to learn because we all know that at some point in time, we're going to have an earthquake, Right? It's going to happen. If you have your Bibles, here's what I want you to do. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. This is week 3, week number 1. I encouraged you to burn your plow. We looked at the farmer, Elisha, and said, make God plan A, plan B, plan C. Don't have a getaway route to go to. Burn your plow. Last week, we talked about pick up your shovel, right? Before God powerfully works in your life, More often than not, he asks you to pick up a shovel, dig some ditches, and prepare the way for what he's going to do in your life. Today, if you get, if you notice your your study guide, what we're going to talk about is find some jars. Find some jars. We're going to talk about what that means, but it's the idea of navigating through life when crisis comes our way. When we have a major setback, what do we do? So let's jump in. We're going to put the verses up there, but after that, it's going to be helpful for you to have your phone or your Bible there available. Here's what we read. 2 Kings 4 verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets, also known as the sons of the prophets. We'll talk about that in a second. She called and she cried out to Elisha. He's your servant, your worker, but he's my husband and he's dead. And you know that he reverenced, he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take away my two boys and make them slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what what do you have in your house? Well, your servant, that's how she's referring to herself. Your servant has, has nothing there at all except, uh, except a small jar of, of olive oil. Elisha said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go around, ask all your neighbors in the village for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Implication is get as many as you can. Verse 4. Then I want you to go inside your house, shut the door behind you with your sons. And then I want you to pour oil into all the jars. As each is filled, put it to the side. She, she left him, shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars and, uh, to her, and she kept pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. And there's the miracle, right? There's how the problem's going to get solved. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Verse 6, when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another jar. But he replied, there's not another jar left. So the oil stopped flowing. She went and she told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil, pay off your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. 
So by the time we get to this story in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha is not a rookie prophet. After last week's miracle where he, the digging of the ditches and the miraculous showing up of water for the troops, he, he, is, he is nationally known. He is the main prophet, right? Now, because he is the main top dog prophet in the land, he, he, he organized what's called, and you saw it in verse 1, the sons of the prophets or the company of the prophets. He puts together a work group, right? A small group, essentially, a, a group of prophets, what he is the head of. And, and he, gets a, he gets a text, he gets a phone call from this one lady saying, one of your workers, who happened to be my husband, he just died. And, and I need some help. Now, we're, we're not told who this guy was, who this prophet was. But Jewish tradition, and sometimes it's very helpful to look at Jewish tradition and what they write. Jewish tradition tells us that it was the prophet Obadiah. Now, if in fact it was the prophet Obadiah, this is a stand-up guy. He was known for um, at being the prophet, being the guy who would, who would rescue, protect, and hide prophets that were being persecuted. I mean, he was a top-notched guy. Having said that, how, how do you say this kindly? That there was either some financial mismanagement, or just because of his job, he didn't have the ability to provide financial security for his family. At the very least, he didn't have a very good life insurance plan. Because he dies... And he leaves his wife and his two, his two boys in dire straits. He leaves them with a major significant problem that comes their way. I, I don't know about you. Would you agree there are big problems and there are small problems? I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. As I'm looking at our society, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that we are living in a day and age where people are are taking small problems that come their way and they're turning them into big problems or they're responding to their small problem as if it's a big problem, okay? So, so for example, when, when Google Maps takes you to the wrong location, that is not a major problem. <laughs> Chill. When you're at the restaurant and they put too much goat cheese on your side salad or forget to take the tomatoes off, that is not a major problem. Chill. Right? When, 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 when the latest post that you have on Instagram only gets seven likes, that is not a major problem. Chill. I just saw it this past week. Let's put it on the screen. This was in the news. Man sues Popeye's chicken over sold out chicken sandwiches. I just can't get happy, he said. He so sued Popeye's because, quote, he spent so much time in line waiting for his chicken sandwich only to get to the counter and be told, we're sold out. Quote, I'm depressed and don't know what to do with my life. This is not a major problem. Chill out. I need you to turn to the person and say, chill out. Go ahead and tell them, chill out. We are allowing small problems to become big problems. Now, in our story, would we agree it's not chill out? She's got a major issue. I, there's at least three things that this poor lady is struggling with. Let me show you. Let's put them on the screen. Uh, number one is that she's heartbroken. Who can blame her? She's experienced the actual loss of her spouse. Any one of you that have experienced loss of a close family member know how hard it is, especially a spouse. Goodness gracious me, how hard must that have been? But on top of that, she now has to wrestle with and struggle 
because she is stressed over the possible loss of her sons. You see, here's how it worked in those days. One of the things you have to realize about scripture is, is, is it doesn't take kindly to financial mismanagement. It doesn't take kindly to you not paying your bills. And in those days, it was legally authorized. If you wanted, you could call up on the debt. And if they couldn't pay up, if it was a certain level of debt, you could force them to give you a family member as collateral. They would work for you until the debt was paid off and or the year of Jubilee arrived. So what this creditor is doing in our eyes seems unthinkable. In those days, completely legitimate. So you have this wife that goes from losing her husband to the possibility of now also losing her sons as slaves because she can't pay her bills. You can't blame her for being stressed. On top of it, she's frantic because she's calling to Elisha because she is at a loss for a possible solution. Enter stage left, the prophet Elisha. And in the text, he gives us two questions. Here are the two questions that he asks. Question number one, how can I help you? What do you need? Now, maybe it's just me, but does his bedside manner seem a little cold? Okay, because what I would like to see, I'd like to see a hug. I'd like to see a cup of coffee. I'd like to see some questions. How are the boys doing? How did the funeral service go? Now, maybe it's just not in the text, but he just he gets right down to business. So what do you want? What's going on, right? And you have to imagine she explains the situation to him. You know, I, I told Obadiah last year, we, we needed a new car. I told him to get a used car. He went ahead and bought the new Honda. We, now we got four years left of payments. We owe $20,000. We're three, years, uh, three, three months behind on our mortgage. We've maxed out our credit cards. We're in deep trouble. Do you have some sort of profit fund that you can help us out? She explains. He follows up and now begins to assess the, the situation and asks question number two. Well, what do you have? Which is his way of saying, well, what do you have in the bank account? What do you have in your purse? What do you have in your home by way of resources that we can maybe figure out and take care of this problem. And her answer is nothing. Now you see it because I put it for you on the screen. That's not true. That's not true. When you look at the text. I read it very quickly. And I even skipped it when I did at the beginning. It, it, it is I have nothing. Then there's a pause. There's, there's something in the middle. And then she adds well actually. I, I, I guess I have some olive oil. And what commentators are saying is her first answer, I have nothing. Well, how are we going to solve this problem? How much money do you have? How many resources do you have? Nothing. And the pause, the commentators are suggesting, is Elijah right in there going, come on, girl. You've got to have something. You can't have literally nothing. Okay, yeah, I guess I, guess I do have something. Which leads us to the first life principle that I want you to write down and I want you to to think about with me. Often, the emotions that come with a major problem, with a major crisis, blind us from reality. So here's what you need to understand. When you have a major setback that comes in life, not, not a small problem like not getting a chicken sandwich at Popeye's, but a major setback, you can expect that there will be an emotional response that you have. Do you know why? Because you're not a robot. God's created you with emotion. 
And I want you to know that that's normal. In fact, as a pastor, when I'm meeting with someone that's gone through a major crisis or a major problem, if they don't respond emotionally, I'm more concerned for them because it tells me they're burying their emotions and it's going to pop up somewhere down the road. That is, that is normal. But what I also want you to understand is that sometimes our feelings or our emotions are healthy and or they're unhealthy. See, here, here's what happens. When, when we have an issue, when we have a crisis, when we have a problem, there are emotions that we experience because of that crisis and because of that problem. But there are times that the emotions that we experience are not coming from the problem itself. They are self-imposed problems. We are creating and aggravating the problem by the way we are thinking and responding, responding emotionally to the problem. In this particular case, the stress that this woman experienced, the frantic nature of her problem, the grief that she's going through actually causes her to aggravate and escalate the problem. Because the reality is that she doesn't have nothing. She does have something. And what you have to understand about feelings is that sometimes they aggravate the problem and make it actually worse than it is. And sometimes we minimize the problem and make it lesser than it really is. And all I want you to understand is be very careful with your emotions because emotions have a way of blinding us to the truth. It's interesting when you start looking at scripture about verses about blindness. I've just given you a few. I I had to pick. Because there are so many. Let me just read them. Second Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world, notice small g as in our enemy, the God of this world has blinded the minds. And it goes on to say of unbelievers. One of his greatest strategies is to, to, have you, to, to take off your glasses and blind you to the truth of what is going on in your life. He wants you to minimize the problem and or aggravate the problem. To blind you to reality. When, when Jesus was asked, what, what, why are you here? What are you doing? One of the answers he gives in John chapter 9 is, you know why I came? I came so that the blind will see. Now, when you actually look at the life of Jesus, he means that both physically, literally, and he heals blind people, but he also means it intellectually and theologically. He wants us to think different about life. And part of why Jesus came is so that we would not be blinded by what is going on around us. The apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, At one point, at one time, you lived in darkness. At one point, you were blind. But then he goes on to say, but now you're children of light. And you don't have to be blinded by the enemy or by situations that come your way. You can actually look at life and understand it for what is really happening. And all I'm saying is be very careful with your emotions because if you're not careful, they have a tendency to blind us to what is actually happening in our lives. This poor woman finds herself in a situation where she aggravates the problem and essentially says, I have nothing in my wallet. I have nothing by way of a solution and I have nothing to contribute. I felt that way three weeks ago when I was laying on a gurney at 11 p.m. in Oakland ER. As you know, the injury happened about three weeks ago. I appreciate your prayers and the texts and everything. It's slowly improving. I pay the price after teaching because it's in, in a lower position right here, but um, I'm gutting it through. And, uh, but I remember being on that gurney in, in Oakland ER at 11, 11 p.m., and uh, I, I, I was in the, the ambulance gurney for a long time, for like an hour. They didn't do it. And so at one point in time, I asked the nurse very politely for four things. One, could I please have some medication? <laughs> Much as you could give me. 
Number two, can I please have some ice? Because that's what relieves the pain the most. I, I am literally icing it about 15 hours a day right now because it feels great, okay? Uh, uh, number three, could you transfer me from the gurney to a bed? Those gurneys are thin, narrow, and uncomfortable. Can you just get me in a bed? And number four, most importantly, why they transferred me to Oakland is can we see the specialist at some point? And she pretty much ignored me, which was hurtful to me because I'm very sensitive. And, um, and we have two nurses that work there. And so I was expecting a little bit of VIP treatment, nothing, right? And this goes on. Now I get it. There's more serious patients. I get what's going on. There I sat, right? And none of it. I didn't get any of it. I felt like I had nothing to contribute to the situation until there was a commotion in the room right to the left of me. And something was going on in there. The sec- there was a security guard sitting right outside this room. Now, I don't know if that's what, where the security guard was normally posted, or I don't know if the guy inside the room did something he shouldn't have done. I don't know. But the security guard got up and very firmly spoke to the patient in this room. I'm telling you to sit down. I'm not going to tell you again. Don't make me come in there. Get back in your bed. No, you may not leave the room. Sit down. No. And then he said this. I I don't understand you. I don't speak Spanish. And then he turned to all the ER. And he said this. Does anybody speak Spanish? And there was all, all these white and black nurses walking around that speak no Espanol. And he said it again, a little louder. Does anybody speak Spanish? I was like, I do. He looked at me like, you cracker don't speak no Spanish. I kid you not, they wheeled my gurney over to the room. They couldn't get me in because the door was too slow. So I was like, ¿Qué pasa? ¿Qué quieres? ¿Tienes sed? Are you thirsty? ¿Quieres ir al lavabo? Do you have to go to the bathroom? ¿Quieres comer? Are you hungry? ¿Te tienes que sentar? Oye, mira, va, va, van a entrar. No, no, tú te tienes que sentar. Vas a tener que ir a la cama. ¡Siéntate! ¿Qué quieres? ¿Quieres dormir? ¿Quieres que apaguen las luces? He wants you to turn the lights out. It's 11 p.m. That's all he needs. Turn the lights off. He wants to sleep. They turn the lights off, right? Problem solved. Thanks to Dr. Reverend Pastor David. You know me. Sandy says, how do you get yourself into these situations? I was like, I was just, I don't know. The next nurse that walked by, I'd like, excuse me, excuse me. She stopped. And I said, did I do good? She goes, yeah, you, you did good. So I added right then, because I knew that was my leverage point. How about some meds? I kid you not, within three moments, I was popping a pill. It was wonderful. Now, here's my point. I do have a point. Whether you're on a gurney in an ER, when you ju- either, whether you just went through a divorce, whether you just declared bankruptcy, whether your spouse just died, Wherever you've gone through, whatever earthquake you've gone through, don't ever believe that you have nothing to contribute. Which leads to principle number two. Stop waiting for what you think you need and start working with what you already have. 
Stop waiting for what you think you need and start working with what you, you already have. So in this case, the woman, and understandably, I'm not going to throw her under the bus. Understandably, she doesn't have much, but she has something. She has a small jar of olive oil. Let's say it's the size of this bottle of water, right? We'll start there. I looked it up. You know, for us, olive oil. <laughs> olive oil, we, you know, we go to a fancy restaurant or an Italian restaurant. They put some, some flavored olive oil. We dip the bread in until the meal comes or the appetizers show up. That's how we use olive oil. A few people use it on, on their salad, you know, oil and vinegar. But we don't use olive oil a lot, not in those days. I, I looked it up. It was used for cooking. It was used to burn in lamps, so for light at night. It was used for medicine. It was used as a moisturizer because you couldn't go to Bath and Body Works, right? It was used to make leather pliable so it didn't crack. It was used to keep iron from rusting. It was used for anointing, and it was used for offerings to God. Here's the point. It was incredibly useful and valuable. It was valuable. And so Elisha says, no, I, no, I get it. Let's get away from the nothing. You have something. It may not be much. It's a small, it's a small jar of oil. Let's, let's start there. Let's not think about what you could have and what you might have and what you think you need. Let's start with what you have. There's a book written called The Houdini Solution. Author Ernie Schleck points out that every one of us lives in a box. He, he uses, you know, we use this phrase, you got to think outside the box. And we mean that to, to suggest you got to be creative. You got to come up with pro, you know, solutions to your problem that maybe you have. Think outside the box. And, and he, and he says, well, that, that's fine, except you also have to live in reality. And reality is that everyone else has a box. The box represents who you are. The box represents your abilities and your talents and your giftings and your education and your experience. It represents your resources. And, and, and no matter how hard you try, you have that box. You have your limitations. Now, hopefully someday you bust out of the box. Hopefully someday you get a bigger box. But right now you have a box and I have a box. So when you face a crisis, says this author, sometimes the worst thing you can do is to try and think outside the box. What you need to start doing is you need to find solutions that are inside your box. Stop thinking about what you don't have. Stop thinking about what you think you need and start working with what you already have. Isn't that helpful? Start with the little oil that you have. One of the main themes in this story, it, it doesn't pop up until you, until you read it like 15 times, but the minute it pops up, it just jumps off the page. And it's this idea of emptiness. Emptiness. We, we see it referenced in verse 3 when, when basically the, the prophet says to the woman, go find empty jars. But, but let me show you what I mean. Let's put it up on the screen. Let, let me show you how it goes throughout this passage. The problem in the story is that her bank account is empty. The solution to the problem, Elisha says, is go find jars that are empty. Now watch, here it comes. This is, this is the great point. The miracle ends when there's no more empty. This is, it's absolutely fascinating. If you look at the text later on, Here's what we see, right? Elisha says, okay, we're going we're gonna to take, you got one little jar of oil. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to go to everyone in the village, all your friends, all your neighbors, and I want you to beg, borrow, and steal as many empty jars and containers as you possibly can. So they go to one neighbor, and they get a cool whip, 
empty jar. And they go to another one. And, and, and that neighbor gives, gives, gives her five, five bottles of empty Snapple, right? And they go to another one and they get a, they, a takeout soup thing that you get at the Chinese restaurant. And they go to another and they get a, they get a, a two liter bottle of Pepsi. And they go to another and they get Tupperware. And on and on. And they're collecting all these empty containers. Because that's what she was told to do, right? And, and then you're going you're gonna to go back to your home. And what we're going to do is, is you're going to take all these empty containers, you're going to take your jar, and you're going to fill. And oh my goodness, have another empty container. And fill, bring me another empty container. And fill, bring me another empty container. And it goes on and on and on. Can you imagine the excitement in that kitchen? Can you imagine? This goes on. And mom's getting excited. Son, bring me another empty container. Son, bring me another empty container. Because what they are hearing is cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. It is money for them. This goes on until her son says this. Mama, there's no more empty jars. We've gone through all of them. And then look it up in the text. It says this. And then the oil stopped flowing. Here's the point. God's power would have continued to be manifest. God's power would have continued to flow if they had more empty jars, which leads us to the last life principle I want to share with you, and it's this. Being empty tends to be a a precursor to being filled by God. Being empty tends to be a precursor. It comes before God fills you with his power or with his wisdom or with his solution in your life. Goodness gracious me, what you see on the screen, I'm going to turn it into a sermon someday because I, I, I had to stop studying this because it was so interesting what scripture tells us to empty us ourselves of. Here, the three obvious ones is you have to empty yourself of sin. The psalmist says in, six, in Psalm 66, verse 18, when there's sin in my heart, and the idea there is repetitive, unconfessed sin, because we all have something, right? But if you have that repetitive, unconfessed, I don't care about it, sin, when you have that kind of sin in your heart, listen to how this verse says, God doesn't listen to you. Well, if he doesn't listen to you, he can't help you. You got to empty yourself of sin. You also have to empty yourself of, of self. I know that sounds a little bit redundant, but you have to empty yourself of self-sufficiency, of self-focus, of selfishness, whatever. You got, got, you got to get rid of you to some extent. One of the most famous um, and important verses in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, in the New Living Translation, I love how it starts. It says, my old self has died and been crucified. My old self is no longer alive within me. It has been crucified with Christ, and now who lives inside of me is not self. It's Christ. you gotta, you got to empty yourself of self and let God live in you. You can't make life only about self. You've got to make it about others. There's a story about an old wise monk who's mentoring a young apprentice. And the apprentice comes to him and he says, Master, he says, I, I want to know how to be filled with the wisdom of God. I, I want to be, know how to be filled with the power of God. I want to know how to be filled with the presence of God. Teach me. And the older mentor goes over to the table and he picks up a tea kettle. And he goes to the saucer and cup of the student and he starts to pour him, pour him some tea. And when the tea gets to the top of the cup, he doesn't stop. He keeps pouring. And it spills over onto the saucer. But he keeps pouring. 
and it spills over onto the table. And he keeps pouring, and then it spills off onto the ground. And finally, the, the, the student goes, stop, stop, you're making a mess. Can't do this. To which the older, wiser monks responds this. He says, you need to understand you are so full of yourself, there's no room for God. Question, what are you full of? What fills your life? What fills your time? What fills your thought life? Because that will tell you how much room you have for God. And what I'm suggesting is you've got to empty yourself to some extent before God can fill you. The last one, you've got to empty yourself of skepticism. Matthew chapter 21, uh, verse 21. You have to fix that in your notes because I didn't have it right. But Jesus is having this conversation. He says, if you have faith and do not doubt... Now, this doesn't happen all the time because sometimes it's not based upon your faith whether God works. It's just he's a big God. But in, men, in some cases, there are these instances where Jesus says, listen, you want me to work in your life. Two things are required. You need to have faith in me and, and you need to get rid of this doubt and skepticism. Here's the issue. Do you or don't you trust me? Now, understand, God is fine with our questions. He really is, but at some point, they become a barrier, our doubt and our skepticism to God working in and through us. Does that make sense? Being empty isn't always a bad thing. Being empty is actually a precursor to being filled by God's power and his presence and his wisdom. Here's how the story ends. Verse 7, here's what we read. It says, she, this widow, went and she told Elisha everything that had happened, right? And, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. Notice the order, all right? Don't, don't, don't go buy some new furniture yet. First, pay your debts. You and your sons then can live on what is left. In other words, problem solved, crisis averted, the boys aren't going anywhere. Every single one of us, I guess, walked in here today with a problem. Some of you are faking it really good, and we can't necessarily tell, but you walked in with a massive crisis type of a problem. Some of you, maybe you don't have a crisis, but you have a pretty big problem. But whether you have a crisis problem or a big problem, we all walked in here with at least a medium size or a small problem, right? Every single one of us. So regardless of the size of your problem, I'm just curious. Who, who's interested in a God pick me up? Huh? Who could use a little God pick me up? Amen. Every one of us. I'm going to show you how to do that. I'm going to give you God's bounce back formula that summarizes the story and guaranteed helps fix your problem at least a little bit. Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. There are four ingredients. Ingredient number one is God. It's kind of the obvious one, but you need to bring your problems to God. You need to lay them at his feet. So the story starts by this woman reaching out to the man of God, Elisha, and presenting the problem. Now, in those days, that's what you had to do to access God. In our days, you don't have to come to the pastor to do that. You can have direct access to God, but you still have to bring your problem to him. Now, just one little side note. Did you notice that there were two, verse, two times that it was mentioned? The woman went into her house. Here it comes. Listen. And closed the door. Why? Why didn't this miracle happen in the, in the village square? Because if, if my thinking, 
That would have sure helped everyone else's faith, don't you think? Oh my goodness, look at she's keep, oh she keeps pouring oil. Oh my goodness, that would have that would have blessed everybody. But as it is, two times in seven verses, she closed the door. It was just her and her two boys around her small kitchen table. Why? You know what I think is going on here? Elisha knows that as you're going through your spiritual journey, there are instances where you will have public God moments, like at church. But it also can happen at work or at school or at the gym, where God intersects with what you're going through. And whether it's a conversation or whether it's a thought or whether it's him working in your life, it's a public God moment. But oftentimes, it's not public, it's private, as in it happens in your family, with your family. Could I ask you a question? Is God present? Is God interacting with you in your family time? Not your church time, not your youth group time, not your small group Bibles time, your family time. Beyond praying for a meal... Do you talk about God? Do you mention verses that you've read? Deuteronomy says, you know, he should come up in conversation after you watch a movie, while you're playing basketball, after something happens. It's just part of common language. There's public God moments, and then there's private family God moments. And if you want to do this spiritual journey the way God intended, you have to include them into your family. Ingredient number one, you need God. Ingredient number two, you need humility. I don't know why it is. We live in a self-sufficient society and we find it hard to admit that we need help. There are some of you here with whatever size problem you have and you really think you can handle it on your own. No, no, I, I got it. I got it. I don't need help. Could I tell you something? That is not only not true, it's not biblical. God never intended for it to be that way. Now, I'm not suggesting every single problem you got to share but some of them you do. You know what? I can't fix my bum leg. I have to have the humility to go to Kaiser and talk to men and women that are a lot smarter about anatomy than I am. And whether it's your marriage or whether it's your finances or whether it's your career or whether it's your body or whether it's your spiritual journey or whatever it is, whatever problem you have, you do realize there's people out there that are smarter than you and they can and want to help you. Are you going and asking your neighbors for help? Because that's what she did. Ingredient number three, you need to put some effort in. Let me ask you a question. If God was able to provide the miracle of oil that never ended, could Elisha have snapped his fingers and just provided all the containers? Absolutely. Why didn't he do that? Because that's not how God works. It's not how he works. He wanted to see this woman involved in the miracle. You go around and ask for containers. You want a job? You got to get up off your couch. God's not going to just drop the, the job on your lap. And you got to go online and you got to fill out some applications and you got to send out some resumes, whatever it is. You want restoration for your marriage? You got to sit down with someone. You got to read a book. You got to go to a marriage conference. You're struggling emotionally? You got to sit down with a pastor, with a therapist, with a friend. Your finances are a disaster? Sit down with a financial counselor. Sit down with someone who's got it. To, you've got to make an effort to fix your problem. 
And frankly, in some cases, not everyone, some of us were just not sweating enough. Got to put a little, little effort into it. Ingredient number one is God. Ingredient number two is humility. Ingredient number three is effort. And the last ingredient is obedience. Do what he tells you to do. Now, could I add, it may be completely unrelated to what you're dealing with. You might have a financial problem, but he's asking you to obey him over here in your family or in your career. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do and obey him, do it. Now, could I just say the obvious? What Elisha tells his widow to do doesn't make sense. And that's the point. Are you willing to obey even when it doesn't make sense? Are you willing to put your faith into action even when you don't have all the details? God, plus humility, plus effort, plus obedience, and I guarantee you, you will have some measure of success, relief, or a solution. Guaranteed. So whatever problem you have, whether it's an earthquake-type size problem or a smaller problem, look at the screen. Because if it's not getting fixed, it's one of those four ingredients. It's one of those four. Which one of the four is it? Which one do you need to apply? He wants to restore. He wants to fix. Now it's up to us. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just take a moment. Why did God want you here tonight? What did you hear from the Holy Spirit? What are you going to apply so you don't waste the last 35 minutes of your life? What are you going to take home with you to fix your problem, to deal with your earthquake? Take a moment, just you and God. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how practical it is. Father, we're challenged tonight to go around the village and look for some jars, understanding what that means. Father, I pray right now just for those that are here that are really going through a major setback, a major crisis. There's an earthquake that they weren't expecting that's come their way. I just pray that you would encourage them. Could be a physical or a marriage or a financial, whatever it is, Father, just encourage them. Give them a sense that you're, you're with them. Give them hope. Remind them that regardless of what happens, you walk side by side with them. Thank you, Father. We love you and all God's people said, amen. amen.